As we saw in the last episode, God raised up some amazing men to produce the most influential Bible translation in Arabic. I want to continue exploring a little more about this translation and see what its legacy has been over more than a century. No Bible translation is perfect, of course, and languages undergo significant changes over the course of a hundred years, leading to a need for updated translations that contemporary readers can understand. Cultures and religions have also shifted in the Arab world, which raises new challenges for Bible translation. So let's explore these things and more together. I'm Andrew Case, and you're listening to Working for the Word. Now, I want to reiterate that what Smith and Van Dyke did with their Arabic translation was impressive and remarkable compared to what other missionaries were doing around the same time. I have an intimate acquaintance with a translation that went very differently, actually. Also done by Presbyterians back around the time that the Van Dyke translation was published. Now, as you know, I used to work in Equatorial Guinea, and I was tasked with helping on a revision project for a New Testament in the Kombe language. This particular New Testament was the product of a totally different approach to translation. So here's what happened. Some missionaries from Pennsylvania essentially chose around five Kombe men to be sent back to the U.S. in the late 1800s. They were tasked with learning English and then translating straight from the KJV into Kombe. They were not taught Greek, and so you can imagine how that translation came out. Now, as I understand it, 5,000 copies were sent back to Equatorial Guinea, but the men themselves never returned. Of course, the translation never quite caught on in a significant way, and it was never updated or reprinted. The language changed, there was a genocide in the 1960s, and more than half of the Kombe population fled to different countries, many to the coast of Gabon, where French is the national language. As I worked with a small team to revise this translation, it became very clear how much it had followed the KJV, even to a fault. Eventually, the team was dissolved because of the death of the elderly woman who wanted the translation the most and because one of the key couples on the team joined the William Bronham cult, which is a heretical sect born out of the Pentecostal movement in 1901, which now has its center in Louisville, Kentucky, and sees its largest sphere of influence outside of the United States. But I digress. Now, One of the things I think that are important in Bible translation is to keep chronological snobbery at bay. And what I mean by that is that we need to keep looking back and studying what Bible translators who came before us have said. The tendency for most people in any field is to disregard older literature as primitive and focus exclusively on the latest studies, books, and journal articles. I see that tendency all over the internet today. But we need to be in constant conversation with the past and learn from our predecessors and not disregard what they have to say just because they didn't have access to the latest linguistic publications that we do today, etc. So, 
I went back to see what some of the old archives of the Bible Translator Journal had to say about the Van Dyke Bible, and found one by E.F.F. Bishop from back in 1964. Let's look at a few things he had to say about the legacy of the Smith and Van Dyke Bible after a hundred years. It's really interesting. He writes, Throughout the past hundred years, the major Arabic Bible has been known as the Van Dyke Version, after its illustrious reviser. But whether discussing minor matters of format or major matters of language and scholarship, the doctor would have been the first to say that in reality, he had simply entered into other men's labors. When he set out on the greatest undertaking of his career, there was both the fact of previous Arabic versions going back several centuries and the personal foundation of his immediate predecessor, Eli Smith, who was in advance of most of his missionary colleagues in regard to textual criticism. This New Testament science had recently been brought to the public notice again through the discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus, and Dr. Eli Smith was a most painstaking scholar in this field. So this was actually a really exciting time to be alive. Incredible historical treasures were being uncovered in the 19th century. And so if you haven't heard of it, Uh, You can look this up. I don't want to get on too long of a rabbit trail, but the Sinai Bible or the Codex Sinaiticus is one of the four great unseal codices of the Christian Bible in Greek. It's an Alexandrian text-type manuscript written in unseal letters on parchment and dated to the mid-4th century. And a lot of scholars consider the Codex Sinaiticus to be one of the most important Greek texts of the New Testament, along with Codex Vaticanus. It was discovered by Constantine von Tischendorf in 1844 over at the famous St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai Peninsula. But even though it was discovered technically in 1844, it took a long time for the trickle-down effect for other scholars like Dr. Eli Smith, working on the Arabic translation, to get access to its text for text-critical purposes. So all that to say, it was a really big deal, and it was an exciting time to be alive as a Bible translator and textual critic. Now, getting back to Bishop's article, this was really interesting. He says both Dr. Smith and Van Dyke must have been avid readers of Arabic. It was once suggested that the translation of the book of Jonah was tackled after reading a quantity of the Arabian Nights, an indication of the value which the translators placed on Arabic style. At all times, this was a prime consideration, along with loyalty to the meaning of the Hebrew and Greek. This, to me, is just so cool and exciting to read about because... When you're working with cultures today, most of the indigenous, smaller minority languages that you're working with in Bible translation, they don't have any legacy of literature like these guys were dealing with in the Arabic world. So, you can't go and read all of their great epics and poetry and all of those things to gain a better understanding of the styles and the beauty of their language that they value. All the languages that I've dealt with so far personally have exactly zero other reference material in written form of any kind. No established literature or literary style. So it can be a little depressing. Now, getting back to Bishop's article, he also discusses a little more, in a little more detail, the native speakers of Arabic who worked with them. So he says, 
Putrus al-Bustani and Nasif al-Yazidji shared in the initial and final stages of a work that has stood the test of a century among a people whose language has become as sacred as Hebrew and Latin ever were. These men's names have become household words in the annals of Arabic scholarship. Nasif al-Yazidji was a master of Arabic grammar. His mind stored with Arabic words. Yusif al-Asir, a Muslim sheikh and a graduate of the Azhar in Cairo, was also brought in to help with the work, so that Egypt shared in a work whose current revision has been in the able hands of two men who have known Egypt all their lives. Nasif, of whom Eli Smith said that his aid is essential to the best success of the work, was a poet of some distinction and the composer of many of the hymns sung in the churches of Arab lands today. The name of Bustani is perhaps even better known in Arabic circles. True to his name, Butrus was a flowering linguist with Syriac as well as Greek and Hebrew to his credit, and it was he who was responsible for the laborious task of producing the first drafts. So basically, we're looking at a dream team of native speakers. If you ever get a chance to work with a team like that, drop everything you have and thank God for it, because that rarely ever will happen to you in the world of Bible translation. Now, as we saw in the last episode, there were a lot of other people involved in this translation from all over the Arab world who were receiving by mail drafts and checking them and giving their comments and suggestions and critiques. And Bishop says it is probably questionable whether this procedure can be predicated of any previous Arabic version, certainly not of the famous Newcastle Bible of 1811, nor of the 1816 version made by Nathaniel Sabat under the supervision of Henry Martin. It is interesting to note that both these early versions had failed to win wide acceptance. The one, because it had been modeled too closely to the style and vocabulary of the Quran in an endeavor to attract Eastern Muslims. The other, because it bore the defects of a one-man translation and in particular was inadequate in its choice of Christian terminology. Sooner or later, the attempt had to be made to produce a translation that would meet the needs of both Muslim and Christian communities, serving as an instrument of evangelism and as a basis of Christian education, worship, and liturgy. The question still remains unsolved. How to produce a version of the New Testament appreciated alike by Christians and Muslims? So, it's interesting that Bishop raises this question. I would love to know what was behind it. What was going on in 1964 that would make that an issue to bring up? Now, of course, later in the series, we're going to see how this question leads to a huge explosion and a massive fallout in the world of Bible translation, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So, let's keep going with Bishop. We're going to get into some more technical matters now about this translation and updating it. So, at its centenary celebrations in 1904, Bishop says that the British and Foreign Bible Society decided to adopt as its norm for purposes of translation the text of Nestle, which had been produced a few years earlier. So, this is one of the first departures from the Textus Receptus as the Greek base text. 
So, he continues, For all practical purposes, this has continued to be the standard basic New Testament text for translators. It was soon after the Jerusalem meeting of the International Missionary Council in 1928 that an unofficial investigation of the text of the New Testament in the Van Dyke version was undertaken. The object was to try to see how far Van Dyke would require alteration or adaptation in the light of the Nestle text, aware as the participants were of the fact that Van Dyke often anticipated readings adopted in the revised version. The work was undertaken by a group consisting chiefly of missionaries in Arabic-speaking countries, 11 in all, who were asked to compare the text behind Van Dyke with that of Nestle, noting such other passages as they thought in need of comment in view of the greater light thrown on the text of the New Testament since 1864. This piece of research revealed some 350 differences in the Gospels and 300 in the Acts and Pauline corpus. The vast majority of these were points of detail, simple omissions, the result of the authority of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and occasional insertions and changes. End quote. Now, I don't know how much you remember about the last episode, but what happened was that Dr. Eli Smith did not feel tied at all to the Textus Receptus. Like Bishop said, he was an incredibly gifted textual critic. So, he was trying to reconstruct the text based on the most recent research and manuscripts as he could. But then what happened was that the Bible Society said, no, we only will publish something based on the Textus Receptus. So, Van Dyke had to go back and make it conform to the Textus Receptus. And then after all of that, the Bible Society decides to change its mind and go with an updated text away from the Textus Receptus. And so, they have to revise it again, back to where it probably would have been with Dr. Eli Smith. So, here we see how the idiocy of bureaucracy can play a big part in the inefficiencies of Bible translation. And nothing has changed about that. Now, back to Bishop's article, he says that these little differences between the Textus Receptus in Van Dyke's translation and the Nestle New Text were nothing more than blemishes, in no way detracting from one of the truest and most exact Arabic translations, and there is no doubt about its literalness, nor of the expression of the spirit of the book in the translation as in the original. In the light of that comment, Smith Van Dyke and their collaborators would certainly have concurred in the present revisor's treatment of curios in its New Testament contexts. So, now we enter into an interesting little window into this issue of translating curios or Lord in New Testament contexts and what kind of decisions were made or what kind of revisions were being made. The Greek word offers more meanings than one. In Arabic, it is rendered by two words, arab which clearly recognizes the element of divinity, and asaid, which is used as a term of profound respect only, for instance, of the greater prophets in Islam, including, of course, Jesus. In certain New Testament contexts, it would seem obvious that the apostles and others spoke to and of Jesus using kurios in the sense of Said. In the two incidents cited above, however, Arab is employed in accordance with pious usage in what Peter said to Jesus in the boat, as also in the instruction given by him as to what to say to the owner of the donkey 
in asking for the loan. This is a point to be borne in mind in Bible translating, especially in translations made for distribution in the Islamic world. On the other hand, no one today would query the decision of Van Dyke and his associates to employ Arab for Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. But he does have a footnote here. He says, this was contrary to what Eli Smith would have suggested as he seems to have advocated transliteration. Instead of putting Lord, in other words, putting Yahweh transliterated, Van Dyke wrote a letter on the subject to Dr. Jessup in September of 1888, a letter which I don't have, but I would love to read. So, those are some snippets I wanted to share with you from Bishop's article, and I want to finish with one more. There is a Second World War story about this Arabic Bible that he says would have pleased Van Dyke himself. He writes, the press in Beirut had been importing paper from Italy for its books, but this quickly became impossible. One day, the director of the press, the Reverend Paul Erdman, was at the docks and was accosted by one of the customs officers who told him of a consignment of cigarette paper which had remained in the customs house unclaimed for months and which he might have as he needed paper. The paper was tested for taking ink and at the end of 1939, an edition of 5,000 copies of the Van Dyke New Testament printed on cigarette paper was sent through the Arabic-speaking world. Van Dyke had been credited with immense care in his choice of paper, ink and binding, as well as type for the printing of the scriptures, but even he could hardly have anticipated a refinement such as this. End quote. So, what has happened since with this Bible? Well, Wikipedia's page on Arabic Bibles has this to say. About 10 million copies of this version have been distributed since 1865. It has been accepted by the Coptic Church, the Syriac Orthodox Church, and the Protestant churches. Most printings of the Van Dyke version use the same basic printing plates, which have been employed for years, possibly the same plates that were made when the translation was first adopted. These plates are typeset in a manner consistent with calligraphic Arabic conventions. Due to the proliferation of simplified Arabic typography because of the challenges of early digital typesetting, this style of Arabic has become less common and may be difficult to read for non-native students of Arabic. More recently, newer printings of the Van Dyke have been made which employ simplified Arabic typesetting without vertical variation. Now, the Van Dyke translation was done at the beginning of the revival of modern standard Arabic as a literary language, and consequently, many of the terms coined did not enter into common use. One indication of this is a recent edition of the Van Dyke printed by the Bible Society in Egypt, which includes a glossary of little understood vocabulary with around 3,000 entries. In addition to obsolete or archaic terms, this translation uses religious terminology that Muslim or other non-Christian readers may not understand. It should also be noted that an Arab Muslim reading the Bible in Arabic, especially if reading the New Testament, will find the style quite different from the style that is used in the Quran. This is more or less true of all Arabic translations of the Bible. Also of note is the fact that religious terminology familiar to Muslims was not very much used in this version of the Bible. 
As a counter-reaction to Van Dyck's Protestant translation, the Jesuits of Beirut started to prepare their own Catholic translation of the Bible soon after. End quote. Now, as you might imagine, after over a hundred years of using a Bible that became so successful at its launch, was so widespread, the King James-only effect definitely took place. The Smith and Van Dyke translation achieved total KJV status, and there were many people who would violently oppose any attempts to make a new translation or updated translation. Fast forward to 1973, when Living Bibles International launched a new translation of the Arabic Bible under the direction of George Husni, a Lebanese Christian based in Beirut. Now, Husni employed two key translators, Said Baz for the New Testament, completed in 1982, and Dr. Samuel Shahid for the Old Testament, completed in 1988. Initially, the project was vehemently opposed by the proponents of the Smith and Van Dyke translation, and Mr. Husni made a tactical decision to model the translation after the popular NIV and named it Book of Life an interpretive translation. So, the result was wide acceptance throughout the Arab world. In 1992, it was dubbed the New Arabic Version, the NAV, after Living Bibles International merged with the International Bible Society, which is now Biblica. The nearest English translation to the New Arabic Version is the New International Version. Translators consulted various English and Arabic translations and checked thoroughly against the Greek and Hebrew original texts with the aid of a team of scholars. This version is the most widely distributed, with several million copies in circulation. However, a more significant fact about this project is that Christians in the Arab world began to accept the idea of new translations after seeing the importance of a clear and contemporary Arabic style. In 1992, the Bible Society released today's Arabic version, a dynamic equivalence sort of translation designed to be as easy to understand as possible. It's also known as the Good News Arabic, the GNA, or the ecumenical version, in that it was produced by an interdenominational team of scholars and church leaders. It was conceived as the Arabic equivalent of the English Good News Bible, also known as today's English version, but is in reality more like the English New International Version. In the 1980s, an Egyptian Christian found that his Muslim friends couldn't understand the Bible. He began with a translation of the Gospel of Mark, and their enthusiasm led him to translate the entire New Testament completed in 1990. This translation was titled, The Noble Gospel. The language is quite simple, with vocabulary deliberately chosen to be common with vernacular Arabic. It is much clearer in many passages than other translations, but it is not very elegant. It uses Arabic proper names and religious terminology understood by most Arabic speakers, rather than foreign names and ecclesiastical terminology found in older translations. The full Bible was published in 2000 and titled The Noble Book, also known as the Sharif Bible. Now, when we get to 2005, we find a Syrian Arab author named Mazar Maluhi who brought together Christians and Muslims to produce a new translation of the Gospels and Acts in Arabic. 
The result of their collective efforts was published in Beirut in March 2008 under the title "The True Meaning of the Gospel of Christ." The goal of the project was a translation of the gospel message that would speak clearly to Arabic speakers unfamiliar with church terminology and traditions. It features a culturally sensitive translation with footnotes providing cultural background information essential to understanding the text in modern literary Arabic. So after that broad panorama, we're going to dig deeper into some of these newer translations and their philosophy and some of the missiology that undergirds them. And of course, that will lead us into a discussion of what is probably in modern times the biggest controversy in the world of Bible translation. We will also hear some interviews from George Husni himself and D. A. Carson. So if you're not subscribed already, you want to make sure to do that so you don't miss these future episodes. Thank you so much for listening as we learn together. I'll catch you in the next one.